the sector is filled with really smart, committed people who are deeply interested in working as effectively as possible, and frankly, often succeeding against incredibly difficult odds. Like We have to remember that almost by definition, our opponents have more money and more power and operate in a system that is designed to resist change. And the progressive movement, you know, has had tremendously important victories, partly because we have fought effectively. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My podcast is kind of on a roll this week. We have another great guest today. He is Jerry Hauser, currently of 2050 Advisors. He's the founding CEO of the Management Center, which for many years has worked to help social justice leaders build and run more equitable, sustainable, and results-driven organizations. You might know their book, Managing to Change the World. Jerry has a lot of wisdom about how to manage progressive organizations, and I hope you'll listen to this interview. We covered a lot, and it's a great chance for you to get to know him better. So, after our sponsor, my interview with Jerry Hauser of 2050 Advisors. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Jerry, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. And thanks so much for having me, Nathaniel. So my name is Jerry Hauser, and I founded and for 15 years led the Management Center, which helps social justice leaders learn how to build and run more effective and equitable organizations. Along the way, I co-wrote the book, Managing to Change the World, and I personally coached dozens of leaders of progressive groups including a number of the folks you've had on this show. In terms of my background, I've had a variety of experiences that are maybe strung together by the two themes of being passionate about social change and also fascinated with the question of how to make things work in real life, or as our tagline at the Management Center read, how to turn good intentions into great results. So more concretely, my path took me from being a political science major and running community service organizations in college, to working as a high school math and history teacher in a low-income community in California, then getting trained as a lawyer and being pretty active in public interest work while I was in law school, to going to the private sector to work as a management consultant at McKinsey & Company so I could learn as much as I could from that side of the world. I then came back to the nonprofit sector to help run Teach for America during a period of pretty dramatic growth, where we more than tripled in size over the course of my seven years there. 
Then after the 2004 elections, I found myself deeply frustrated by the direction of the country. And I thought that my small contribution to helping change it could be taking what I felt like I had learned up to then about building high-performing organizations and helping share that with progressive groups that were fighting for our country's future. And so that impulse ultimately led me to team up with a donor named Peter Lewis to launch the Management Center. Just to bring it to the present, about a year and a half ago, I very happily handed over leadership at the Management Center to a fabulous member of our senior team. And since then, I've had my own coaching and advising practice, which is called 2050 Advisors, through which I support leaders of progressive organizations who are fighting to do things like protecting our democracy and preserving the planet. Well, that strikes me as a pretty good career so far. (laughs) (laughs) And in an area that I really care about. And, you know, I'm glad that you've been working away at it for so long. I want to ask you a couple of questions about what you just said. When you say social justice leaders, what are you referring to? Oh, gosh. I think the core of it are groups in what I think of as the the progressive ecosystem that, you know, frankly, if you were to put a map together of all the leaders and the organizations they represent that have been on your show, my impression has be a pretty good list of that, that ecosystem. So all the groups that are, you know, engaged in the great battlefield, as you, as you describe it, we broadened it when I was at the management center a little bit more, um, to include groups working on issues of educational equity as well, which is, you know, I think governed by the exact same values as those who are fighting for progressive change in this country. But the the players and the landscape is a little bit different. So we used a slightly broader term. So of the guests I've had, which ones have you coached and what are their secrets? <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. I love that question. I'll tell you as soon as as soon as we stop recording. <laughs> Yeah, you won't even do it then, I know. I'm interested in that story of how you founded and built that, but I want to go back before that, even though you've kind of laid out your path. what? Tell me a little bit about what you were like as a young person before you walked down this whole educational path and career path. What what kind of guy were you? Boy, that's a good question. You know, I I grew up in the Maryland suburbs just outside of D.C., so a small, predominantly middle-class town called Kensington. And I came from a line of government scientists. So my dad, for much of his career, was an astrophysicist at NASA. My grandfather, his father, was a chemist and a regulator at the FDA. I probably absorbed an analytical bent from them. But also, we weren't too far removed from the Jewish immigrant experience. So my grandfather, in particular, had grown up in abject poverty in Chicago. And his father had had to place his kids in an orphanage for several years when they were young because his father couldn't afford to feed them. So from that, I think my grandfather developed a really strong social conscience and an understanding of how inequality played out in the country and a commitment to public service and to making the country better. And I think some of that rubbed off on my father and on me. As I grew up, my main influences were basically liberal Democrats. And, you know, you asked what kind of kid I was. Among other things, I was kind of a goofily patriotic kid. So I remember even if I was home alone watching like a baseball game on TV, 
I always stood up when they played the national anthem in my living room. I was always inspired by what I understood of the founding ideals of our country. And then as I got older and I saw more of the inequities and injustices in our society for myself, I think that dissonance between what I had learned were our ideals and what we stood for and what I saw playing out in front of me led me to feel a sense of of responsibility to try to be part of improving things. Yeah, that makes sense. I noticed that you went to Duke and were Phi Beta Kappa and Summa, at least based on your LinkedIn, that I know because my mom was Phi Beta Kappa, that means pretty good student. What made you a good student and what kind of things did you do as an undergraduate? Boy, you know, I was, I think I was, well, first of all, I'll say I had the privilege of having, I think, an excellent high school and public school education before that elementary and and high school. I think I was fortunate enough to be well prepared and I worked pretty hard. You know, my father was an Eagle Scout and I think some of that ethos of uber responsibility uh, rubbed off on me. So I worked pretty hard. I And, you know, frankly, I was really interested in what I was studying. I was a political science major and got into political philosophy and wrestled a lot with the questions I was studying. And so I think that helped me do well academically. I also spent a lot of my time there, you know, in a variety of different activities. But among other things, I was pretty active in community service and ran a, a program that worked a lot with high school students from low-income communities in Durham, which is where Duke is. Even then, I was struck by the the brilliance and the joy and the potential of the students that we were working with and how much of it was being lost to the inequities in our education system and, and our society more broadly. You said you ran a program. Is that like your first management experience or when is your first management experience? I think that was my first management experience. In fact, I had I had a funny experience a few years ago when my father and stepmother moved, and so they they dumped several boxes of my old things on me. And I was it included my files and papers from college, and I was going through them, and I found all these files from this organization. I ran one, I started another, and you know, in these files there were very earnest letters I had written to my vice president talking about the plans for the year ahead and agendas for meetings and all this stuff. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, it's been 30 years and I am still, I have the exact same job as I did back then. (laughs) So I guess in some ways, yeah, it it sort of came full circle. Although at the time I I certainly, that wasn't the intention. But did you think, was that a fit for you at the get-go that that kind of leadership and management role? Were you interested in sort of the theory as well as the practice of it? You know, it's interesting. I think maybe because I wasn't really exposed to that side of it as a young person, definitely not the theory. I think what I saw, even even in college, that, you know, when I was running this program, we grew a lot when I was there, largely because of my predecessor who had set it up incredibly well. And yeah, I saw how we ran things made a difference. That then was deepened a lot in my next experience and the ones after that. But I did start to, I think, develop instincts for for the idea that, you know, how you executed on what you were setting out to do could make a huge difference in the world. 
So after college, you did some teaching. Tell me about that. After working with the school system in Durham, I was eager to roll up my sleeves and engage around the issues I'd seen and understand the education system in particular better than I had. And the fastest way to do that at, at the time, Teach for America was just getting launched. And so I applied and got into the first core and got to teach at Compton High School. Um, you know, I had a tremendous experience there, and I was struck, I think, even more forcefully by the magnitude of inequities. So it, just as an example, the high school I went to here outside of D.C., BCC, which you're probably familiar with, about 90% of the kids who started in ninth grade graduated four years later. When I was in Compton, I'm not sure what the official statistics reflected, but I know that we would have an entering class of close to 900 ninth graders. And four years later, we'd have a graduating class of between 200 and 250 12th graders. And the vast majority of the kids who dropped out did it between ninth and 10th grade. So when I was there, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out, you know, what's going on and what could I do about it in my classroom, but also what I thought the levers of change were more broadly. And, you know, I had an experience my second year there that really opened my eyes and helped crystallize one element of it for me. This was in the fall and it was time for parents night. And the way it worked at Compton High School, we had about 1,800 total students. And on parents' night, maybe 100 parents would show up. And walking around, it sort of felt like kind of almost like a ghost town. And, you know, among the teachers and the administrators, there would be all kinds of explanations for why that was, many of them, you know, frankly, insulting, like, you know, the parents just don't care enough. And I knew from my own interactions with the students I was teaching with their parents that that was definitely not the case, but it was pretty depressing. So my second year out there, the same night of parent night at Compton High, I happened to be carpooling with my close friend who worked at our rival high school, which was Dominguez High School. I went to pick him up and I walked in and the place was just like filled with parents, like just swarming. And I saw my friend and he had a line of like 40 parents lined up waiting to talk to him. It was incredible. And so I was really struck by that. And I talked to him about it on the way home. It turns out if you looked at what went on going back to, to Compton High School and how we publicized Parents' Night, and this was just one small example of a lot of broader issues, but for Parents' Night, we would put up a notice on the board in front of the school. So if you happen to drive by within a day of Parents' Night, you might have seen a notice that said, Parents' Night tomorrow night. The day of Parents' Night, we would send notes home with the kids in their backpack that same day, which if they made it home, was certainly too late for parents to rearrange work and childcare schedules. So I asked my friend, like, what did Dominguez, what did they do differently? And it turned out they had a new principal who was determined to do better. And so they mailed letters home in advance, talking about parents' night and inviting parents. And then they had students who they hired as interns in their office. And they called and personally invited every parent so that they would feel welcome and encouraged. Nothing about that was rocket science at all, but it was driven by a determination to do things well that I saw led their leadership and their team to do things differently. And what I saw was it could produce pretty dramatically different results. 
And so I think that planted a seed for me that some of the way you made an impact in the world was not big and abstract and theoretical and philosophical, but really nitty gritty delivering on what you're setting out to do. I've talked to a lot of people who taught out of college, either through Teacher America or elsewhere. I think it's been meaningful for everyone I've talked to, but often very difficult, especially the ones who taught in schools that were challenging. Teaching is not an easy profession, especially when you first get going. How was it for you? Teaching is still, I would say, the most challenging experience I've had. I think it's incredibly difficult and incredibly difficult to do well. So I have tremendous respect for teachers. And as you say, teachers going into into lower income communities in particular, because the magnitude of the challenges and the inequities that you're trying to help address is is so massive. So especially my first year was immensely challenging. One thing that I think is incredibly valuable about it that you learn and that I learned quickly, some people call locus of control, but basically I learned that it was all on me and that so much of what went on in my classroom was was in my control. And when I came in and came in with a thoughtful, well-done, well-prepared lesson and had engaged the students in, in what we were doing and why it mattered, things went really well. And if I came in and I was down that day or not energetic or whatever, the experience was a lot harder. And so one thing that I internalized from that was just how much of how things work, it's in your control as an individual. And if you're in a leadership role in an organization, so much of it is in your control. You're training them, but they're training you. You're learning from having to lead a classroom, having to manage a classroom, having to keep order and inspire people about what works. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's an incredible instant feedback mechanism. One of the things that I think I learned from the students was how much it mattered that they knew that I had faith in them and that I saw how how talented and how smart they were. So one of the things and one of the reasons, frankly, my first year was so challenging I came in and I was assigned to teach five sections of what was then basic math. And if you were in basic math as a ninth grader, it was basic math one, it led to basic math two, which led to consumer math, and that was it. And if you did that, you could graduate from high school, but you could not go to college in the state of California. And the curriculum started out with a review of addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division and then on to decimals and fractions for the umpteenth time that the students had had it. And the students would say that they were in the dummy class. They were the low track kids in this in Compton High School and in the district. My first week, I gave the students a diagnostic, and I saw that there were a lot of students who could do more than that. And I also was frustrated, and I couldn't figure out why I would be inspired if I were a student to be in there. And so I ended up... Um, uh, taking on sort of a, I wouldn't call it a battle, a campaign with this school administration, many of whom were really supportive, but to turn the class from basic math into pre-algebra, which substantively wasn't even that different. But by making it pre-algebra the first years, then you would go on to algebra, then geometry and algebra two. And with that, you could get into state universities in, in California. There was a lot that was entailed in changing the curriculum, changing the course around 
then I ended up having a lot of those same students back again for algebra the next year. And so we knew each other. They knew how invested I was in their success. And it felt like we were very much on the same team and working together. So I do think teaching is incredibly hard and you learn unbelievable lessons about about leadership and about everything, life and and society from it. A lot of people, after putting out that intensive effort, move on because of the draws of other career. What was next for you? Yeah, I took a brief detour to go learn Spanish, which I had started to learn while I was there. I was at the time still wrestling with what what was the cause and the driver and the potential solutions to the inequities I was seeing. And I sort of had this image that there were people somewhere sitting around a table that were making decisions that were affecting communities like Compton. I didn't have a terribly sophisticated analysis, but I thought I wanted to be in a position to influence what went on there. My image in my head was they were probably a bunch of lawyers doing that. And so I decided I would go to law school and I ended up going to Yale, which I was incredibly lucky to have the chance to do. And was there at a time when there was a lot of energy from people trying to figure out how you could bring about social change. I know you had Nick Turner on your show recently and he and I were in the same class. You know, it was an incredible experience. I got to do a lot of of different things and explore avenues like civil rights litigation, which I ultimately realized was not what I thought was the best way for me to pursue trying to produce change. One experience there that was, you know, not as dramatic, but still eye-opening was that I ended up helping to run a group that was called the Initiative for Public Interest Law at Yale. What we did was we raised money and we gave it out as seed grants to start up public interest law projects. So we funded people, one of the groups we funded when I was there was was Brian Stevenson when he was first launching Equal Justice Initiative. We were not the only ones, to be clear. It, there was nothing fancy or, or massive about what we were doing, but to the extent that it made an impact, it was really a function of how much money we could raise and therefore give away each year. So the second year that I was involved, we figured out how to do some things better as basic as one of the main ways we made money was we got students to donate their old textbooks because law school textbooks are crazy expensive. So when you finished a course, we would try to get you to donate your old textbook and then we would sell it to the incoming students the next year. So my second year, we realized that rather than trying to get people to donate their old textbooks in the fall, if you caught them literally on the way out of the classroom after their final exam, they were much more likely to just throw their book in the bin And so we collected a whole lot more books that were donated and therefore were able to sell more books. And we did things like that and increased our fundraising total by about 30%. And again, it wasn't rocket science, but the experience stuck with me. And I started to ask myself, what if organizations trying to make social change could increase their impact by increments of like 30 or 40% a year? And what if you could do that year after year? Well, that could lead to some pretty dramatic results. So that planted a seed that then I carried forward from there. Was there anything else about having gone to law school that really served you in the long run? I'm sure there are lots of things, but anything in particular to point to? Yeah, that's such a good question. I think that I did understand more about 
politics and policy and how the world works. And I think I wouldn't have an appreciation for, frankly, the work of all of the clients of the management center and from inside players to outside players, how that all came together in how you shape public policy and public will in this country. So I think it gave me a more sophisticated understanding of how you make change in the world. There are certainly other specific things from law school, but if nothing else, I think it helped make my thinking a little bit more sophisticated about how the world worked and how you produce change. What did you do after law school? Well, so the seed of starting to think about how organizations worked and how you would deliver on change you were setting out to do that got planted there stuck with me. And so I ended up almost on a whim. A friend encouraged me to do it, interviewing at McKinsey and Company. And they made me an offer. And I thought, well, this is a great chance to learn as much as I can, as fast as I can about what the private sector understands about how you build and sustain effective organizations. So I I went to work there right after law school. And it wasn't necessarily the issues I wanted to work on full time, although I did learn a tremendous amount. So I had a very good experience there. But in the long run, it wasn't the issues you know I wanted to spend my energy on. I didn't necessarily feel like I was contributing anything terribly unique there. One of the projects I worked on, I got to do a little bit of pro bono work there. And I ended up doing a pro bono project for Teach for America. As part of that, we were looking at their Teach for America's recruitment strategy and results. And I made this really great chart that showed how Teach for America's recruitment results were correlated with the unemployment rate. And that as the job market got worse and as unemployment went up, so did Teach for America's recruitment results. And as the economy got better, their recruitment results went down. The economy was getting better. And so the point of the chart was to say, hey, as the economy heats up, you all might be in trouble. And so you need to really pay careful attention to recruitment. Well, just to fast forward for a minute from like practically the day I made that chart onward, those lines completely diverged, which taught me two things. One was to be wary of consultants with glib answers. And um, the second thing I think was similar to the lesson I'd learned in the classroom, that there's often way more that's in your control than might appear at first glance. How did you move from McKinsey to chief operating officer then at Teach for America? Yeah. So so through that work, I had met Teach for America's founder, Wendy Kopp, and been blown away with how impressive and brilliant she was and is. And um, she started talking to me about ways I could contribute to helping Teach for America do what it was setting out to do, which I was a deep believer in. So she recruited me into a senior role there. And at the end of my first year, we created a new role that was chief operating officer, where I, I was basically the second in command. And that meant that I oversaw all the day-to-day of what Teach for America did. At one point, I think I had something like 29 direct reports, which I don't recommend. It was not a sustainable structure. And we did eventually actually pretty quickly change. But it was an incredible opportunity to go in and learn firsthand about how you actually ran an organization that was trying to deliver on ambitious aims. And I think I learned 
a huge amount from Wendy and from that experience about how you did that and how you made things work. Like what? So just to set the stage, it was one of those things where I know you've founded and run organizations, Nathaniel, and you know that sometimes things can look good on the outside, but be challenging internally. So internally, it always felt like there was one thing after another, nothing, there was no day where I came to work and thought, oh, perfect. Like everything's working great. There are no more challenges. We're on a roll. It never feels that way. But externally, objectively, we were getting some some pretty great results. So we dramatically grew the scale of Teach for America while increasing on measures of, of quality and on racial diversity. So our applications grew from about 3,000 a year where they had kind of plateaued to 17,000. We went from bringing in 600 new teachers, new core members a year to 2,000 a year. And our funding grew from about 7 million to over 35 million, all in the span of a few years. All that because of what? Well, I, I learned a number of things. A huge one was the power of setting really ambitious aims and getting the team aligned on them and having those aims roll down through the whole organization. So we set out in, this was in 2000, a plan to make Teach for America into a much more powerful and effective movement to combat educational inequity. We had five pillars about what that meant. And each within each pillar, we had ambitious goals. So we had a growth goal for instance. And then we broke that down into what had to happen each year. You know, One of the goals was triple in size. And we went back and looked at what that meant for recruitment and what the different responsibilities of each part of the organization. And it sounds sort of obvious, but creating the plan, getting everybody aligned around it was a huge part of it. And, and, and getting everybody invested in why it mattered and why it would be powerful if we could achieve it. And then it's just a series of nitty gritty problems. So for instance, on recruitment, we needed to do better. And what we did was look at where are the campuses where we're getting the best results. And we basically benchmarked against them and said, well, what would it look like if we brought all of our other target campuses up to those levels? And what would we have to do? So it turned out, for instance, a huge thing was going from doing kind of mass marketing and reaching out broadly to the student body to targeting individual students, literally identifying who are the students we think might be promising applicants and inviting them to sit down and have coffee with us and talk about their future plans and get to know them and, and invest in them, which was something that top consulting firms and investment banks were doing, but not a lot of people in the nonprofit world were doing. So that was one thing, setting an ambitious aim and then just breaking it down into the pieces that had to happen. And Related to that is the importance of paying attention to execution and seeing how things are playing out in reality and constantly improving on those. So I learned as I was there how important it was to not just you know sit in the office and say, to take that example with recruitment, we're going to start doing this, we're going to shift the strategy, we're going to go have these coffees, but to actually go out with our head of recruitment and visit our recruiters on campus and sit in on the coffees or try to do them ourselves and see what was hard, what was working, what needed to be improved about them. And that taught you so much by being into the nitty gritty. The last thing I'll highlight that I learned there was the importance of talent. And this was something that I did not appreciate until I lived it. But I'll give you one example that really brought things home for me. One 
huge part of the organization that I oversaw were our regional offices. And each region was responsible for the strength of the program and for raising money to support its operations. So one of our regions was the Rio Grande Valley, which is you know not a wealthy area. And the executive directors there would always raise money. When I started out overseeing these regions, the the then incumbent was raising anywhere from between forty and sixty thousand a year, and and this is just as one measure of her effectiveness. It was not the only thing, but as one concrete measure, we eventually became convinced that we might be able to do better. In parallel, I had met through being involved in some of our trainings a young woman who was one of our teachers and who had come back to be a trainer for us. When we were doing, getting ready to do the training, she was pretty outspoken about ways she saw that she thought we could do things better. So I sat down with her. We talked. I was convinced that she was incredibly insightful about what needed to happen, and she was right about all these things. So I decided to stay in touch with her, and it turned out she was from the Rio Grande Valley. She was the first in her family to go to college. She was going back to teach a third year, but we stayed in touch during the course of that year. We came to the point where we decided, you know what, I think we can do better. We need to make a change in the leadership of this region. And so we ultimately let the then leader of the region go. And that last year, I remember the exact number, she had raised $56,000. And we weren't sure whether we could do better, but we, we thought we might. And we brought in this this new woman. We convinced her to to take over the role. In her first year, fundraising grew from 56000 to 285000 so a factor of five. Two years later, she had raised a million dollars. She's, by the way, now the CEO of, of Teach for America and succeeded Wendy Kopp in running the organization. But that experience, and I did nothing different other than get her into the role. If anything, I spent less time with her, supported her less. You know, that might be the answer, too, that I was less in her way. What it really taught me was, you know, the difference between somebody who is really well suited to a role and even somebody who's okay, but not great at it. And that it's not like a difference of 10 or 20%. It's five times something like that different. And that if you take seriously your job as a manager, that your job is ultimately to get things done and to deliver results while actively managing the makeup of your team and making sure you have the right talent and so that was, I think, a final and incredibly powerful lesson that I learned there. What do you do when you feel a loyalty to a person in a role who's helped build an organization, but you know is not of the talent level that could produce that kind of increased performance? How do you handle that kind of situation? Yeah, I think there's... A few things. The first is really getting clear with yourself that that's the case, because it's knowing how hard it's going to be to to take that situation on. It is so easy to convince yourself things are okay. You know, it's it's not bad. So the first thing you have to do is 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 really think about it. And there's a few different heuristics we would develop. One was just encouraging folks to think about what would the ideal person in this role do? Don't ground yourself in what the person in it now is doing. But if you had the ideal head of this region or the ideal head of your communications team, what might they do? We also would encourage people to think, you know, suppose this person came in tomorrow and told you that they were really sad to tell you, but they had found another job and they were leaving. 
how would you feel? Would you feel incredibly deflated or would you feel relieved? And if you feel relieved, that tells you something. And that tells you that, you know, ideally you would effectuate a transition as hard as it might be. In terms of actually doing it, once you're clear that that's where you're headed, I think you have to do it. We used to talk a lot at, at, when I was at the management center about excellence with decency, or as my successor calls it, love with rigor. However you put it, and I frankly love his like his formulation better, however you do it, I think you can be rigorous about your needs and interact with people with love and with decency and do it in a way that treats people with respect, that affects a transition, you know, so you give people plenty of opportunity to land on their feet, to find the next role, but to fundamentally recognize and honor the strengths they're bringing and to engage with them in a discussion around, I think you are incredibly good at these things here. For instance, this woman I mentioned, the, the person who didn't stay in the role, was a really good one-on-one, she was an incredibly warm person, incredibly supportive. And finding a role where she could use those skills would have served her so much better than trying to lead this region where there was, you know, all sorts of things that weren't going as well as they needed to. And so sort of holding up the mirror and saying, I think you're exceptional at this. What this role requires is different. There is a fit problem here. It's sort of a round peg in a square hole. And we need somebody who can deliver on these things. And I'm not going to shy away from that. At the same time, I would love to support you in helping you find something that really does take advantage of those strengths that are considerable. So it's not that somebody is terrible. It's that they have different strengths and being honest and upfront about them. And, you know, certainly there's a lot behind that in terms of giving them a chance to improve and clear signals, because sometimes you might come to that understanding and you've never been clear with them that actually what you expected was entirely different from what they thought. So so you do want to give them a chance to get better. But eventually when it's time to make a change, I think you can do it with decency and with with love and with investment in the person and make sure you're meeting the needs of the organization at the same time. Well I definitely hear the voice of experience there. And I'm sure I'm sure you've done it as well. <laughs> or tried to get it right and and it's always it's always imperfect, I think, to even if you have those best intentions. It is absolutely. And and I should be really clear that I have not always done it perfectly either, (laughs) even though I know the theory. So, yeah. Um, You mentioned starting something, the Management Center, with the donor, Peter Lewis. Is that progressive insurance, Peter Lewis? Is that? Yes. So tell me me about that relationship and that founding story. Sure. So this was after the 2004 election, and I had followed the Kerry campaign very closely and was frustrated. I felt like it was not a terribly well-run campaign and that it was a winnable race that that we didn't succeed at. Frankly, I'd gotten involved in a local campaign here in DC that was really well-run and took a candidate who had entered a crowded field and was not necessarily likely to win and helped him win a seat on the school board here. And the contrast between the results in that little local race and the the presidential race on election night, I remember just being so struck by and thinking, wow, these things that I feel like I might have learned something about through my experiences, including most relevantly at Teach for America, about how you built and ran an organization that could deliver, those play out in the political world and the policy world as well with tremendously important consequences. So I started talking to friends about my frustration, my sense that there was something to be done around that. And one of my friends from the education world, a guy named Raj Vinokota, said, well, you have to talk to Peter Lewis. And so Peter at the time was one of three 
billionaires who were huge funders of the progressive movement and who were trying to kind of rebuild the infrastructure. So the others were were George Soros and a couple called the Sandlers, Herb and Marion Sandler. Peter had been one of the most successful CEOs of the 20th century and brought progressive insurance from being just a tiny family-owned operation to this behemoth that was third in, in most markets and had tens of thousands of employees and was, was extremely profitable and operated, a lot of people, I think, recognized with integrity. Before my first meeting with Peter, I made sure that he heard about me from a few other sources, including Anthony Romero at the ACLU. It was a, sort of a little campaign I ran, but when I met him, we really hit it off and we found that we shared a lot of beliefs about what it took to run an organization well. He invested in me and at the time I'd taken a role running an organization called the Advocacy Institute, which I thought might be the, the vehicle for this and it turned out not to be and I was not the right fit for that role either. But Peter funded us to basically develop the plan for what became the management center and to try to start doing the work and to kind of pilot it. We started doing that and we realized we might be decent at it and that there was a real need there. And so eventually I convinced him to give us more money to fund it. And the one uh, stipulation was that we started as a new organization. So Peter and I teamed up to start it as a new organization, along with another colleague of mine named Rebecca Epstein. So we launched it in, in 2006. So you have your own piece of entrepreneurship again here. How hard was it to get that going? I mean, finding a funder, very helpful. But beyond that, you have to find clients. You have to build a reputation. You have to grow a staff. You have to have processes. You wrote a book to encapsulate your learnings and share them. I mean, tell me a little bit about what it took and what you did. And as you say, having a founding donor was incredibly helpful. So that took initially a lot of a lot of the worry off and made it much, much easier. It's an incredible luxury to have that. And over time we built out a real revenue engine and that was an important piece of our trajectory. But initially the focus was, yeah, going in and establishing ourselves. We were an unknown quantity in the progressive world. And I think people brought a fair amount of distrust of kind of consultants or coaches who were going to come in and tell you how to do things. And we had to, I think, overcome some of that skepticism. And initially, our focus was just on one-on-one -on -one coaching with one-on-one, -on -one sometimes involving either the CEO or sometimes the CEO, and if they had a number two with them together. But so much of, I think, our early success stemmed from the fact that we really understood and related to where our clients were coming from because we had been in similar roles. And we brought a really deep humility to how hard it was, as you're suggesting, how hard it is to start an organization and how hard it is to run it. And so I think they appreciated that we related to them, that we weren't judgmental. We also recognized how hard their roles were. So instead of being preachy with them about the things we thought they needed to do, our whole mantra was make it easy was how do we make it easier for them to do the things that they need to do to deliver the results they're they're trying to set out. So we were very grounded in kind of pragmatic, you know, things you can use tomorrow. It actually came from when I was at, at Teach for America and we were training new teachers. I was overseeing the person who was designing that curriculum and we'd been surveying them about what they wanted. And I said to this person, you know what? 
can you search the surveys for the word concrete? And he searched, and of course, it turns up a ton of times. And then I said, search it for the word tomorrow. It turns up a ton of times. So the concrete tomorrows became a mantra for us. And that carried over to the management center, which was what people really wanted was concrete stuff that you could use tomorrow to try to get things done and for it to be as easy as possible to use these things. So if we were saying you have to have a hard conversation with you know somebody on your team who's maybe not performing at the level you need, we would not just preach and say, you really need to sit down with Jackie and have that conversation. But we would say, okay, let's talk about what it would look like to do that. And can we go through and script it? And let's practice the really hard lines where you're getting hung up, where it's going to be hard to say it, where it's going to be hard to say, I think this role might not be the fit for you. Can we draft the language and then have you practice saying it? And then we would nag them and bug them like crazy. And we would follow up and say, are you going to do this? Did you do it? We would occasionally bet against our clients so that we would say, if you don't do this by such and such a time, you have to make a donation to the George Bush Presidential Library. And if you do it, we'll send you a gift certificate, stuff like that. So I think people recognized that we were really on their side and we were trying to make it as as easy as possible to do the things that we were helping them learn how to do. So that was a, a huge kind of founding principle. And through that, we grew organically entirely by word of mouth. And we would work with one executive director and they would say, oh, this is really helpful you know, we had one early on, a woman of color leader who worked with us, and she'd been in the role about five years when we started working with her. And she turned to us in one meeting and she said, you know, my only regret as an ED is that I didn't know about you all sooner. And so she and others were good sources of, of word of mouth. And so we grew and we got more clients for the coaching side. We also realized we were saying many of the same things over and over again, and we wanted to make it more digestible. So we started writing memos for our clients to capture some of the things like, here's how you delegate effectively. And those memos eventually turned into a book, which was Managing to Change the World, which has been reasonably popular. And then when we were coaching the leaders, they would say, oh, this is so helpful. Can you help teach this stuff to other members of my team? And we eventually realized that there was huge demand at all levels, initially of managers, to get many of the same tools and skills that we were teaching. And so we started a training program to reach them. And we've trained tens of thousands, I think we're up to 80,000 people through the training program. And then even that expanded, we would talk to managers, and they would say, wow, do you have any tools so I can share this with my staff? And the light bulb went off and we realized, gosh, we should be teaching the same stuff, you know, almost a mirror image of these practices to staff members. So you can say, to a staff member, you know, your manager should be getting really clear on what success looks like when they delegate something to you. So you know what's expected of you, but they are fallible and they're going to forget and they're busy and they might mess up. So it will make your job easier as a staff member if when they delegate something to you and they're not clear about it, you say to them, hey, I think what you're saying success looks like, does that sound right? So we would teach just the mirror image of the same practices that we were teaching managers to staff members. And so we've now done that for, for thousands and thousands of staff members as well. You mentioned sort of building a revenue engine. Does that mean you're charging then for coaching and for this? How did that all work? Yeah, we gradually started charging. So we had a client who we were coaching who said to us one day, you know, this is really helpful. I don't know why you guys aren't charging us, why you all aren't charging us. So we turned around and said, okay, screw you. We'll start charging you. And so we started charging him and other coaching clients, and that started to grow. And then eventually the training program was an important generator of revenue. So we grew 
from, you know, initially in our first year of generating revenue was just a little bit, and then pretty quickly from to 20% and then 40% and then 60% of our budget. And then as the training program got launched and grew, we got to the point where when I left, we were generating between 90 and 95% of our budget from earned revenue. And then we would fundraise the rest so that we could work with anybody regardless of their ability to pay. But that was a really important part of our path in grounding our work in making sure it was useful to people and, and that they, they found it useful enough to devote resources to it and to be able to chart our path independently and do what we thought made the most sense for our clients. Did you find that people took it more seriously when they were paying for it? Did that change the relationship at all or not very much? Yes and no. People always asked us that. In fact, at the beginning when they weren't paying for it, some of the folks we talked to said, well, you have to charge people or they won't be invested. We found that was not entirely the case and that if you were able to be useful and helpful to people, that they would be into it, that that was the bigger, the much bigger thing. And we've certainly delivered lots of clients, lots of scholarships and people I think are at least as invested because they're appreciative of the free or reduced price resources. And in my practice now, it's the same thing. I have a couple clients who are either pro bono or deeply reduced rates, but they're some of the most eager and absorptive of clients. I was operating along the same period of time, more in the for-profit world, though also in the progressive ecosystem. Uh, I turned for management help sometimes. I had a couple coaches. I belonged to entrepreneurial forums with peers and kind of sometimes with a moderator and sometimes self-moderated groups or in some cases, I was the moderator. I found that at a certain point in my career, when I was open to that, that those kind of resources made really critical difference for me at important moments. What is your advice to progressive leaders about where to go beyond the management center, which I, I think would quite clearly be high on the list, but what are the types of resources for progressive leaders? Regardless of their business model, I think a lot of the management challenges are almost identical. What are the resources that are available? Yeah. And first, just to echo that last point, I think the challenges of progressive leaders are very similar to leaders in any sector. They're not alone. They're often harder for a variety of reasons, but they're not terribly different. So I think in terms of other resources, you mentioned finding uh, finding value in connecting with other leaders in similar circumstances. I think that's huge. We did a little bit of that when I was there. We had a group that got together once a month that we would bring together. It was called themselves the ED Fight Club because the only rule was you couldn't you couldn't talk about the existence of the Fight Club. But they would get together and talk about their shared challenges. And I think that was really valuable. Frankly, something that I think there's still a huge amount of potential in is, is sort of finding different cohorts. I know the management center is thinking about different ways to do that and has some of those in place. Rockwood, I know some of your guests have talked about, does a good job of bringing people together and creating connection between them, among other things. I think finding others who are in a similar role, because it is so isolating when you're, and you know this from having been in a leadership role, where there's only so much you can share with, you know, you might have members of your team, but you can't quite share everything. You might have a board and it might be the same thing, your donors. If you have a romantic partner, you don't necessarily want to burden them with it and they might not fully understand it. So for that reason, finding a coach, I think can be really helpful. Yeah, but one way or another, not being alone with it. 
And I think also some of it is just understanding that it's hard. You know, I don't know if you ever read, I think it's Ben Horowitz, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. I did, yeah. Who's, you know, writes about startups in the in the for-profit world, tech startups in particular, but it, but in general. And he, he talks about how one of the most difficult tasks is managing your own psychology. And he says, if the success of startup CEOs was graded on a curve, the average grade would be a 22. And you're all failing because there's so many things that are going wrong. And nobody tells you that. So you think you're uniquely screwing up. To me, that was that was the signature chapter of that book, the one about managing yourself. That I and I I remember bringing that to an entrepreneur forum myself. It reminds me of what you said when you brought to the classroom when you when you brought your best self, the best preparation and intention to that one day of teaching. It made all the difference. It does also when you're in a leadership role and we all can't perform at our highest all the time, but it really does matter. Yeah, I think that's totally true. And and that the you're right. The, the other thing that he says in that chapter is, you know, the average grade is a 22, but nobody tells you that. And it's all your fault, which is the way he puts it, which is right, which is the lesson from the classroom that it is ultimately your responsibility anyway. And it's in many ways in your control. And if the organization is not working well, ultimately it's on you to fix it. And so you feel this weight and this sense of responsibility. Yeah. I think that's a huge challenge, whether it's a startup or a fast growth organization or, you know, a more mature organization, it's really hard to be in a leadership role and can be pretty isolating. And, you know, it's obviously a tremendous privilege as well, but finding ways to take on that isolation, I think is really important. Well, you know, you had expressed this interest in working after the 2004 election on things that mattered, on things that would change the direction of the country. And progressive organizations are part of that, what I think of the the battlefield that we are in the middle of, of trying to steer the country in the right direction. Why aren't progressive organizations more effective at that? I mean, they obviously vary a lot in how effective they are, but Everybody I've talked to who looks at it from the outside sees a lot of room for improvement. You know, I think that is partly true, but I do want to talk about about the premise of that. In that I think progressives, we almost enjoy disparaging ourselves sometimes. And when we started the management center, there was sort of this stereotype of, oh, you're going to go help progressives be more organized and effective. Ha ha, good luck with that. But I have to say, we found nothing other than tremendous enthusiasm and an embrace for the work from leaders who wanted to do that. And I think as your podcast shows, the sector is filled with really smart, committed people who are deeply interested in working as effectively as possible. And frankly, often succeeding against incredibly difficult odds. Like We have to remember that almost by definition, our opponents have more money and more power and operate in a system that is designed to resist change. And the progressive movement, you know, has had tremendously important victories, obviously, over time, partly because we have fought effectively. You know, you go back to the progressive era, to the labor movement, to the civil rights movement, and on and on. In many cases, we won because we were organized and effective. So to take one well-known example from history, the Montgomery bus boycott was in part a triumph of effective organization. So it's in our history as activists and as progressives, and it's in our movements 
DNA. And I think partly we need to claim that mantle. You know, even more recently, there have been some pieces about turmoil and progressive organizations, and it felt like we hadn't made a lot of progress. You know, there was a piece that came out this summer, and then all of a sudden, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act goes through, and we've got great investments in fighting climate change. You have a powerful response to the the terribleness of the Dobbs decision, but you see what happened in states like Kansas, even. You had pretty good midterms where we were able to defeat election deniers in every significant race. You have people talking about how there's more progress in many ways during Biden's first two years than in decades. And I mean, even like look in the House of Representatives, imagine if those had been Democrats that took 15 ballots to elect a speaker. Like we were the party of organization and discipline. And so I think in a lot of cases, progressive organizations are doing incredible work against really difficult odds. And it's easy to over-attribute short-term ups and downs to how well our organizations are working. That all said, you know, because of the structural odds, I think the challenge is not that we need to get our act together necessarily. It's we need to fight more effectively than the other side because the, the odds are difficult. And I do think there are things that can get in the way of, of doing that, some of which we tried to address at the management center. But one of them is, is progressives were very good at being inclusive and ensuring that everyone has a seat at the table, which is a real strength and is often exactly as it should be. But the danger can come in when everyone's involved and no one is clear on roles and positions and who's doing what. We used to, when we would teach about this, we would have a slide of little kids. I know you have you have kids who are a little older now, but when they're young and they play soccer and you see them, everybody kind of following the ball and they're all, you know, they're all engaged, but they're all, there's no positions and no roles. So, you know, we would work with leaders and sit in on their team meetings and you'd see a leader who might say something like, let's make sure we're thinking through the seating chart for the dinner strategically. And everybody would get up and leave and it would kind of hang in the air. And we'd ask the leader afterwards, we'd sit down and we'd say, well, when you say, let's make sure, who is supposed to do that? And too often, one of two things would be true. Either it was de facto still on the leader's plate, which is a problem when there are too many things that only they can do and they need to be freed up to do those things. And they need to start making use of the talents on their team. Or the leader actually was trying to get it off their plate, but sort of delegated amorphously to everyone on their team without a, assigning a clear point person. So one of the things we came up with at the management center was this very simple tool called MOCA, which is an acronym. The key part of which was the O, which stands for owner. People sometimes get really dogmatic about it and it can be taken too far. But the basic idea is that for every significant task or responsibility, there should be a clear owner whose job is to make sure it, that responsibility gets done. And it doesn't mean that person has to do it all themselves. They might be the most junior person or the most senior person. doesn't mean there's necessarily a, a deeply entrenched hierarchy. And other people can and should be involved in other parts of the MOCA cover the roles that others play. But there has to be somebody on point to make sure that things will happen. So we found, as one instance, that having a clear language around roles was really helpful and important. Another thing that is sometimes part of how progressives operate that can be a challenge at the organization level is, is the one that we hit on, which is that to our credit, we are huge believers in human potential and the ability to grow. And the tricky thing is that what that can 
turn into from organizational leaders sometimes is not bringing a high enough expectations for the performance of members of their team and tolerating mediocrity for too long and not feeling empowered to do something about that. As we talked about, sometimes go in and help people address those issues. That all said, though, I don't want to lose sight of the bigger picture. I think we do fight really effectively against incredible odds a lot of the time. And I think that needs to be part of our self-identity as as progressives. Some people who have thought about or written about or talked about the turmoil that has been referenced in progressive organizations have sort of done it through the lens of people now have become too inwardly focused and they are worried about so much about that organization being a sterling example of progressive values that all the attention goes to small details around that and holding people accountable for slights rather than the correct amount of attention to the big mission and some grace given to each other around imperfection. Do you observe that in the organizations that you coach or what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I do see that dynamic playing out and that frustration from all different sides, I think, is is common. And there has been more open talk about this of late. I know you had Ryan Grimm on your show a while back, and he wrote a piece about it in The Intercept this summer. And more recently, Maurice Mitchell, who I know you also had, wrote a really powerful and I think important piece in the nonprofit quarterly that addresses this head on. So I, I think it's a really important discussion. And you know, a few thoughts on it. First is that obviously this is not limited to the progressive sector by any means. This has happened in organizations across society. And as you suggested in the question, I think in a number of cases, that reckoning was real and was long overdue. And you had leaders who had to go and environments that had become toxic and needed to change. And in some cases, that process was really painful, but led to serious improvement or at least much needed accountability. If you talk to leaders, you do hear a lot of frustration. And, and some of it, I think Maurice's piece captures really well, that it's a very difficult time to lead and that normal challenges get blown out of proportion and there's too much energy consumed internally. I will say that I do sometimes hear that frustration directed generationally to name it, there's this sense that that Gen Z is more difficult and more demanding than prior ones. I will say I don't buy that. And I think it's, you know, frankly, a little nefarious and, and even demeaning. And I personally have great hope and draw tremendous inspiration from this generation. And I think we need to resist blaming internal tensions on the idea that somehow this generation is more difficult than earlier ones. I think our generation, frankly, we were more difficult than earlier ones. And every generation delights in thinking that the succeeding generation is uniquely annoying and challenging and problematic. I would like us to break that cycle. So I don't necessarily buy, buy that this generation is any different. I think young people might be more willing to speak up. And sometimes that can be helpful. And sometimes there's a learning curve that we went through that, that younger generations and newer staff members need to go through. To the extent that that feeling of kind of internal turmoil is real and that there has been sort of a, a fever, 
I have clients who ask me what they can do about it. And I don't think there's a single bullet answer and is more like, you know, in a way, 101% solutions, everything from hiring well in the first place, giving people a clear and compelling sense of direction and ambition for where you're trying to take the work and why it matters. So a lot of the things we've talked about. One other thing that I'd say if I had to put a headline that is maybe more important now than ever is the duality of, of engagement and clarity and providing those two things together. Maybe I'll share an example from when I was at the management center. And I want to preface this by saying there are so many times I did not do that or other things well in my own leadership, which is why I can relate to where my clients are coming from. But this was a time where I felt like I did a decent job in particular on those dimensions of engagement and clarity. So during the Trump years, there was a point at which we were about to take on a lot of work for a progressive organization that had become the subject of a lot of critique from the left. And so some people on our team, not everybody, but some people on the team were unhappy about our work for this organization and brought up the question of whether we should be doing it. You know, I and, and others on our team felt pretty strongly we should be. But at least in this instance, I was able to take the time to pause and engage more deeply and started out by listening. And we had a lot of conversations. And instead of just jumping to what I felt like the obvious answer was, which is, of course, we're going to work with this organization. By listening, I learned that part of what the concern was wasn't necessarily that, that we as an organization shouldn't be working with the group, but that some people on the staff had personal and professional ties to groups that were sort of on the other side of this debate. And it had put them in a really awkward and painful situation to have to do that work. Can you share who this is? Because it might make it a lot more understandable. I can't, but you've seen these splits in the progressive sector sometimes. Okay. So in part, there was a benefit that I think people felt the experience from just being heard, which was important in and of itself. So they got to share their perspectives and have them genuinely considered. And then we did two things. You know, First, we clarified a policy that had frankly been informal and sort of living in my head up to then, that it was okay to ask not to serve a group if you have concerns about it. If you're not excited about this client, you should say something. And we can't promise you will never you know, sort of be deployed in a context that you're not 100% delighted by. But we clarified that policy that it is legitimate to speak up and, and ask about being put on a different engagement. These discussions then led to a substantive change internally that made us a stronger and better organization and improved our culture. And the other thing, and this gets to the clarity part, was we learned to be, and I learned to be much more direct and better communicate from the start, even during the recruitment phase, about who we worked with and why and what our theory of change was. And I found that providing that kind of clarity and the rationale behind it and why it mattered up front and then reinforcing it ongoing is really key. Again, I didn't always do it perfectly, but I think that mix of real listening and engagement on the one hand and then directness and clarity can really work to ease some of these tensions. In every organization I've run had that same question about how do you define your clientele and who is okay and not okay. And even recently with graphicacy, where we do data visualization, we had a potential engagement with Ticketmaster. And I didn't know that Ticketmaster would be objectionable in any way, but I had an employee 
who really they must have been a Taylor Swift fan. They, they, perhaps that was part of it, but they, you know, they've had some controversies. They're not a perfect organization. And my employee, he's a musician, and he didn't like how they treated musicians. He didn't want to be involved. And uh, you know, those are those are legitimate questions. And and for a small organization, you can really tarnish things if you don't listen or if you don't live up to professed values. And certainly in the progressive movement, those things loom large a lot. They absolutely do. On the matter of funding, one of the elements of of success for progressive organizations is sufficient funding and funding coming from the right sources and sustainable funding. Do you have any thoughts generally about what organizations ought to be doing to properly get that right? Well, I'll say one thing about organizations. Because the management center grew through earned revenue, I saw and people would come to us and say, will you please teach these other organizations how to do that? And I think that there's this fairly pernicious belief that that is the case for many organizations. I don't think it makes sense for a whole lot of organizations. And I've seen organizations chase it and distort their mission and waste tremendous energy. It's It worked for us and it made sense for us. Given the mission of so many organizations, it's not the path. And so I don't think that funders saying to organizations, just go out and, and generate earned revenue and you'll be more sustainable is not the right answer. Frankly, what I think part of the answer is, is for funders to get their act together. And what I mean by that is that despite lots of seemingly widely shared recognition of how critical funding is, and especially the kind of generous, general operating multi-year support that comes without a lot of unnecessary bureaucracy that as a leader you you tend to crave, there is still not enough of that. We could probably do a whole show on it, but I've seen too many organizations doing really great work fail entirely or hit a crisis point or not grow as much as they needed to at least in part because the funding side of things wasn't working well. And I've frankly seen far too many leaders leave the sector because they got fed up with with what one leader I used to work with called the infantilizing dynamics between funders and grantees. We have everything from absurd grant applications to a culture that too often treats leaders as second-class citizens rather than being viewed as peers or even heroes from whom a funder might learn something. Does it seem like that's changing? Because I, I have been hearing from the funder side, particularly for what it's worth, that they are being much more hands-off, much more trusting, much less granting for specific purposes and much more granting for, for general. general like use of whatever you think is the best use of it. Do you see that happening or is that misleading? To really look at it, you'd want to look quantitatively. And I don't know that I know that. I will say anecdotally, there's definitely more talk in that direction. And so that is out there. Anecdotally, I see all the time when that is not the case. And funders who I think know better, and then you look at what it takes to go through and get funding from them. And it's incredible. The heads of these foundations are out there saying one thing, but then you look at how their organizations are operating and they're not there yet. So it is striking and frustrating and it's problematic because organizations spend way too much energy doing that. The other thing more broadly that I see 
is donors who clearly embrace progressive values, but who I think bring a frustratingly apolitical lens to their giving. I think this is true of everyday small donors, and it's also true of some of the biggest philanthropists out there. To name one who has in many ways been phenomenal, including on the dimensions you just mentioned, of giving huge amounts of support with zero bureaucracy and zero restrictions, and who gave to us at the management center right as I was transitioning out is Mackenzie Scott. She's given away mind-boggling amounts of money. To be clear, like I, I'm aware of her partly because she has been in some ways such an effective and generous philanthropist. It feels like with her and with other donors like her, we're not always confronting the political realities that our country faces and investing accordingly. So to use one example, if you look at Georgia, Democrats have won three races there in the past two years. The result of our winning those has been literally hundreds of billions of dollars, if not trillions, in impact. So just to take one bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, will steer some $370 billion into clean energy. And there is no way that happens if the Democrats don't win those two Senate seats in 2020. If you unpack that and realize that turning Georgia even purple took years of work, and lots of folks point to Stacey Abrams and Fair Fight, which was her organization, and groups like the New Georgia Project. If you look, these are groups that through much of the 2010s got by on budgets of maybe a million dollars, in some cases less, per year. So here's my thought experiment. Mackenzie Scott is giving something like $8 billion a year. If she gave a billion dollars of it and said, I'm going to give this with a political lens, and I'm going to give half of it nationally, half of it to the states, and take that $500 million going to the states, divide it up to the 10 most politically relevant sort of purple states, and put, say, $50 million a year into a place like Georgia, to me, it's mind-blowingly transformative. When you see what even a couple million dollars a year was able to produce there, it's incredible what we could do. And with our democracy at stake, I think we need to be thinking at different orders of magnitude in terms of the level of investment than what we're seeing today. Do you know if Mackenzie listens to this podcast? <laughs> I sure hope so. <laughs> Mackenzie, if you're out there, give me a call. I'll share my phone number in the, in the show notes. I'd love to talk. She has never reached out to tell me that she doesn't or does. <laughs> well, sorry, can I just be clear on that last point? It is not just her. And, and there are other donors who are giving huge sums. And we have to honor what she is doing. And, and there is an allergy in the progressive donor class to the political side. And sometimes quite reasonably when it's difficult to figure out what money actually makes a difference. And if you are just like funding a super PAC, doing advertisements, that may be very valuable in certain cases, and it may in other cases be very hard to discern whether it matters. And it's, yes. Yeah. So like politics is a tricky, tricky area for spending. This is absolutely true. And part of the problem is it's high risk. I will say there are donors who pride themselves on being deeply analytical and being very quantitative in their approach. And part of the reason I mentioned those numbers is that I think when you take the numbers and look at the potential upside 
and the likelihood of success. So when you're talking about a difference of, say, a trillion dollars a year or 500 billion, you multiply by a 1% success rate and then look at, well, how much of an investment would that be worth? Even in that rare case that it does work, it is worth tens and tens of millions of dollars. And instead, we're spending hundreds of thousands, maybe among the most generous donors who, you know, God love them, but I would love to see them spending 10 or 100 times more. Jerry, any thoughts about Sam Bankman Freed? <laughs> no. <laughs> you have described recently leaving the management center and starting your own 2050 Advisors. That's your own consulting organization. That's right. Tell me about why and what you're up to now. I was at the management center for 15 years. I would say. I think overall, I was a pretty effective leader for 12 or 13 of those. And I think I hit a point where I, I think I had contributed what I was likely to contribute and what I had to contribute. And that in terms of what I was bringing and my degree of energy, uh, I knew it was time to hand things over. And I saw staff members and members of our team who I thought could do an even better job and bring us to a higher level on many, many fronts, including increasing part of our work was helping leaders and organizations learn how to manage in a more equitable way. And I was deeply passionate about that, but there were other leaders who brought more know-how on that. I knew it was time to go and was excited to frankly continue the work that I founded the Management Center in part to do, which was work directly one-on-one -on -one with leaders whose work I thought was central to fighting some of the most important battles of our day. I will say, you know, having gone through a succession process, there are some things that I've come to believe from my own experience and from others. I think so much depends on the context. And in fact, that's maybe one lesson is that you will read things out there that will describe succession in one size fits all terms and that there are ways to do it and ways not to do it. And I always see red flags when I read that. My founding donor, Peter Lewis, always talked about there being two kinds of succession. One where you have a CEO or a leader who has been successful in their tenure and is stepping aside largely willingly. The other is where you've had a leader who is failing and is being pushed aside. When you have the latter case, Peter always said, the board needs to step in and make its own judgments and drive a succession process. But when you have the first kind of case, Peter's view and mine as well is that you ought to listen to what that leader believes needs to come next for that for that organization. And so often you read, you know, if you're the outgoing CEO, there needs to be a brick wall between you and the succession process. And I think that's a mistake and that outgoing CEOs can have a lot to offer. I personally bring a bias toward inside succession, having, having been hired as an external successor and doing a terrible job of it and having been the wrong fit and now having hired an internal successor. I feel like whenever possible, that is preferable. It's not always possible and organizations sometimes are you know small enough that you don't necessarily have the right pool of successors to choose from. But where you can, choosing from within or from an adjacent organization or some kind of a known quantity, I think things often go much, much better. I think you need an inclusive process to get input. I've seen a number of cases where the staff picked up on things that boards and, and search consultants had not, including ones where I thought 
a decision should go in a particular way. The board thought that the staff were the ones who raised the flag and they were absolutely right because they saw things that none of us did. You know, and the last thing I've seen in a number of cases, and there's actually a little bit of quantitative evidence on this, is the idea that a departing founder or a longtime ED needs to fully step out. And once you're out, there needs to be a firm break. Bridgespan did an interesting study on this. There's complications to the methodology, but in essence, what they found is that in organizations where longtime CEOs or founders stayed involved in some role, those organizations did better over time. I think it's critical that when you step aside, there be no mistaking who's in charge and that your successor be in the lead. But the idea, I think there's a lot of power in, in the idea that the outgoing CEO and ED can stay involved and often add value, whether that's just advising the leader on the side, taking on a specific project, helping with cultivation of donors sometimes. Even if that ramps down over time, I think that the idea that you need a hard and fast break is mistaken. I had a super interesting conversation, I thought, recently with Stephanie Shriak about both her coming into Emily's List and that transition from 25 years of Ellen Malcolm to her recent transition out, what she learned from that. I mean, it's different in every organization, like you say, but it certainly seems to be something that can matter a lot and ought to be done carefully and intentionally. Thoughtfully. Yeah. If you have the time, what did she say? Well, she said that Ellen was a real challenge on the incoming and that a lot of people thought that it wasn't going to be successful and that she had to assert herself quite a bit and that it took them a while to work out what the job was that they didn't plan enough in advance. There wasn't clarity about what the handoff was and that she was now running. There was a lot. I mean, I can't um, spit it all back. And, and I commend that episode to those who are curious. And I mentioned to her that my transition out of NGP van was, you know, something I've thought about and something which some parts I got right and some parts I didn't. And I learned a lot from that as well. This is why you should be a guest on your show one of these times. Yes, I will have to figure out how to interview myself. Actually, I, another guest had his son interview him for his show, uh, a, a democracy <laughs> podcast, and his son was, was wonderful. There you go. Tell me about your new thing. So it's called 2050 Advisors. The name is mostly just for my own sake and believing that in times like these and times like we were in even a year or two ago, it's really important to ground yourself in hope. I think this is true for young people as well, that you look at all the problems that, that young people are struggling with these days. And I think part of it is because there is not this sense that we're heading in the right direction we're making progress, we're going to get there. For me, calling it 2050, which is meant to be the year 2050, it grounds me in the hope of what the world will look like then. And the issues that I'm most passionate about working on right now are protecting our democracy and preserving the climate. And so by 2050, when it comes to climate, that's the year the target is for net zero emissions. And I hope and believe we will get there. And my hope is that by 2050, we will have grown past some of the turmoil, the tendency toward authoritarianism that we're still seeing, and be living in a much more healthy, vibrant, functioning democracy. So I call it that to ground myself in that. The work is 
coaching and advising senior leaders. Some of progressive organizations, some are in philanthropy, and some are in the administration. Because my belief is that when we hold power, we need to actually deliver on what we're promising to get done. So um, I feel honored to get to work with a couple people in the administration. And it's basically helping them navigate all the challenges that you know from having been a founder and a leader and help them deliver on what they're setting out to do. Can you share anybody that you do coach? Sure. One of my longtime clients was Ethan Todris Whitehill, who I know you've had on the show a couple times, who is the founder of Swing Left. And he recently handed things over to Yasmin Raji, who is the new ED there and who is fabulous. And so I'm lucky I get to work with her. Yeah. And I got to talk to her right right as she was starting the job too. Maybe I'll catch up with her later, but yeah. I think it would be well worth it. The other thing I'm doing is I'm on a couple boards. The one I'll mention here is Protect Democracy. And I know you had Justin Florence from there on the show. And I think they are a fabulous important and fabulously effective organization. Uh, and it's a total privilege to work with them and learn from them. Do you have any quick words of wisdom that you tend to share broadly to these kind of clients? What are the things that come up repeatedly that if someone was going to describe what you say, they would immediately say these couple things? And then no one would need to hire you. <laughs> Let me share a substantive thing and then a slightly spiritual thing. The substantive thing is that as a leader, in many cases, you are making an important transition from being at the point where your impact is largely a function of what you do directly to a point where your impact is a function of what you get done with and through a team of people. And that transition is non-trivial and challenging. The entire name of the game is effectively sharing the weight of driving the organization forward and delivering on what you're setting out to do. And in doing that, there are a lot of people who come in as coaches and consultants and who imply that part of what made the leaders effective that they have to leave behind, that they've had such a high bar and high expectations and demanding standards that they can't expect that of their team and that in handing things off, implicitly the message is you have to lower your expectations. I don't believe that that's true. And I believe that when you learn effective management and leadership, the opposite is true. In fact, that you can get more done than you would on your own and you can find people who can do things better than you would have done even had you been able to do it all. Part of what I work with leaders on is figuring out how do you distribute that weight? How do you spread leadership and the driving forward of the organization and of the work in a way that does not lower the standards, but if anything, delivers at a higher and higher level. So that's the substantive side. At a spiritual level, I don't know that I've shared this exact story, but when I was a kid, I mentioned I grew up with a single dad in my my younger years, and he would take my sister and me we started this tradition of going bowling on Sunday mornings and we went duck pin bowling. And the first time we went, I don't know if you've ever been duck pin for your listeners, but but duck pin bowling ball is the size of about a grapefruit and the pins are a little bit smaller. So the first time we went, my dad said, you know, stood me by the line and said, you know, you put the ball between your legs, you, you look at that arrow right down the middle, aim for that arrow and roll it down the middle and knock those pins down. 
So I lined it up carefully and I rolled it down and I did it perfectly. And I hit right through, right down the middle. And if you've ever been duck pin bowling, you know the frustration of you hit the, the lead pin and the ball just goes straight through. It knocks down that pin and the one behind it and nothing else. So you just get like, it's like a gap tooth smile. I turned around and came back and my sister and my dad were cheering for me. And my dad said, well, that counts as a strike. And I said, what do you mean? You know, the other pins didn't fall down. And he said, son, you did the very best you could. And nobody can ever expect more than that of you. And I think as leaders, we can be, as we talked about, really hard on ourselves, sometimes deservedly so. And, and again, not to make it sound like it's not an honor and a privilege to lead, but it's a hard role. And I think the idea that spiritually, the m- most important thing for you to do is do the best you can and be forgiving with yourself and recognizing that nobody can expect more then you're doing your best. Boy, I just immediately applied that to parenting as well. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Is there a question I should have asked you that I haven't? I don't think so. This has been really wide ranging and, and fun. And it's it's a pleasure to get to be on this, even as guest number 875. Well, 875 is the most crucial. That's the linchpin guest, as we call it. <laughs> I got to explain that I was telling my father that I was going to be on a podcast and he was asking about it. And I said, well, I'm, you know, in fairness, I'm number 875 that he reached out to. So I'll, I'll explain the linchpin. No, if, if I've had 875 means I've reached out to far more than that. (laughs) So it's worse. It's It's better. It's like, it's the most, it's who I want to talk to now is what it means. Right. There you go. (laughs) It's really an honor to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? No, it's a pleasure and an honor to talk to you, Nathaniel. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. That was Jerry Hauser. You can look Jerry up on LinkedIn. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.